everyone has a story, a story of who we are and why we're here, a story that defines us and shapes how we live. For the workers in London, it's the monotony of the daily grind. Commute, work, dinner, bed, repeat. For parents, it's the relentless nature of looking after kids. It's just exhausting. And you're longing for some me time, some time to unwind, some time to relax, some time just to spend with friends. It's those moments that make life worthwhile. For others, it's constantly waking up with anxiety. When am I going to find a job? When am I going to find somewhere to live? When am I going to find that person who really loves me? Life can be really hard. For others, it's the thrill of the weekend, a chance to splash some cash, let off some steam, have some fun. Everyone has a story, a narrative by which we live our lives by. It helps us give us purpose and meaning, a story that helps us to make sense of the world and the decisions that we make. When I was a teenager, I lived for the gym. I absolutely was obsessed by it. I literally went to the gym every day for two hours. And to be honest, I made progress. I started getting bigger and bigger. In fact, friends of mine at the time used to call me No Neck Kimbangi. Would you believe it? No Neck Kimbangi because of my shoulders were huge, my back was huge, and I'd literally walk around like this. You couldn't see my neck. I look back and it just makes me smile. I laugh about it because my identity was wrapped up in my appearance. All I cared about was what I looked like. And in the end, it didn't give me what I wanted. You see, the truth is that many of the things that we dedicate our lives to, in the end, don't give us what we want. Or they do, but actually the pleasure is short-lived and the benefits are partial and fragile. Our bodies, you see, they insist on ageing, despite the 10,000 steps and the new diet that we've started. We thought that maybe the perfect relationship we had would last forever, but it breaks down. Redundancy can come. We can fail exams. And the children that we've invested in for years can sometimes disappoint us. The things we hoped would be life-giving have now become life-sapping. So what do we do? Do we just give up? Give up trying to find purpose and meaning. Give up trying to find that thing that will quench our thirst for meaning and purpose. Well, today in our in-person services, we're actually hearing people tell a different story. A story of how they didn't know God, how they had lost hope. And then came a moment where they met Jesus and Jesus changed everything for them. Jesus gave them unconditional love, acceptance, worth, a sense of belonging, he gave them everything that they ever wanted. Jesus changed their story and they're now being baptised today to just show the dramatic change that has happened in their lives. You see, they decided to make Jesus' story their own story. And today, you're going to have the opportunity to make that same decision, to make Jesus' story your own story and put your trust in Jesus as your Saviour and Lord. And you see, this is what happens all the time when people meet Jesus. We see it in John chapter 4, where Jesus changes the life of a woman who's completely messed up, completely made a mess of life. In John 4, we see Jesus talking to a woman at a well, and we see a glimpse of how Jesus offers something which connects with her deepest longings. In verse 4, we read that, 
Jesus had to go to Samaria. The truth is, actually, he didn't have to go. Going through Samaria was not the usual way that Jews would travel from Judea to Galilee. If you can see the picture on your screen now, you'll see a slide with a map of ancient Israel. And you'll notice that actually, to be honest, at the time, most Jews, if they were traveling from Judea to Galilee, would go east towards Jericho and then go up north following the River Jordan and then go into Galilee. It would be the longer route, but people would usually do that to avoid Samaria. And avoiding Samaria was really, really important for two reasons. Firstly, because going through Samaria, Samaria had loads of mountains. And so if you were walking, it would clearly make walking very difficult and it'd be really, really hard to walk through the mountains. The second reason why it was important to avoid Samaria was because of the ongoing hostile between Jews and Samaritans, because Jews and Samaritans hated each other. Just imagine for a moment, you know, you've got two sets of supporters from two different football teams, and imagine one supporter from one team going along and walking through the crowd of the opposing fans wearing their team's T-shirt. It wouldn't be a good idea, would it? It wouldn't be recommended. It would be hostile. It would be a very difficult environment. And it's very similar to what's going on here. The rivalry between Jews and Samaritans went way back into the Old Testament when the kingdom of Israel split into two. And the Jews living in Samaria started intermarrying with other nations. They started worshipping other gods and following different practices. This meant that over the course of time, Samaritans actually looked different to Jews living in the south. Actually, Jews considered the Samaritans in the north to be racially half-breeds. They were different from them, and so they treated them differently. Most Jews would actually avoid Samaria at all costs, but Jesus heads there anyway. Jesus knows that there's someone he wants to talk to, and there's a people that he wants to reach. We sometimes talk, don't we, about how we have found Jesus, when actually, when we stop and think about it, we actually realise that we didn't find Jesus at all. Actually, he was the one who sought after us, and he was the one who found us. Jesus seeks out this woman. He goes to Samaria. He must go to have this divine encounter, this talk at the well. Let's read John chapter 4, verses 5 to 9. So he, that's Jesus, came to a town in Samaria called Sychar. Jacob's well was there. And Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? There are two things that I want to mention from this beginning of this talk at the well. Firstly is the timing It's midday when the Samaritan woman comes to draw water at the well and she's on her own. Something is not right. Something's wrong. She's completely on her own at the middle of the day and water collection in this culture was the responsibility of women and it became an opportunity for them to get together, to chat, to socialise and do it collectively. But she's on her own. You know, it's a bit like when you're out at a restaurant and maybe you're with a group of people and one woman says... I need to go to the toilet. Ever been in that situation? And surprisingly, I'm still surprised by this, all the women in the group decide, actually, I need to get up as well and go to the toilet. And sometimes you can be sitting there going, 
is this a collective event? Do you need to go all together? You know, us guys, you know, we're, we're quite happy going on our own, but it's okay, you know, you guys, they all go together, don't they? It's a, it's a collective thing. And it's a very similar in this kind of culture. Water collection was a collective community event. You see, the well would be a meeting place for women to socialise. But water collection wouldn't just happen, well, it wouldn't happen during the day at midday. It would happen early in the morning or late in the evening to avoid the heat at the middle of the day. So what happens here tells us that this woman is isolated. She wanted to avoid other women, and other women would want to avoid her. And as we read on, we see why she's isolated. She's promiscuous, and she's broken the morals of the community. She's a social and moral outcast with a bit of a reputation, to be honest. The second thing that I want to highlight from this passage is that Jesus moves towards her and initiates the conversation. Will you give me a drink? This is shocking, really shocking, given the cultural barriers in the community. Men don't speak to women in public, even if they're married to them. Jewish rabbis certainly do not speak to women. And Jesus is seen as a rabbi at this time. But not only is she a woman, but she's a Samaritan and he's a Jew. And they hate each other. They don't talk to each other. They don't connect or socialise. You see, there are racial, gender and religious barriers between these two groups of people. And Jesus crosses those barriers with one simple question. Will you give me a drink? And we see in verse 9 that the woman is shocked and actually she hesitates to actually give Jesus what he's asked for. And given all these barriers, she asks, how can you ask me for a drink? Notice how Jesus actually doesn't answer her question. He responds by saying, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would be giving you living water. Essentially, Jesus is saying, do you know who I am? If you knew who I was, you would have asked me and I would have given you water and it would always quench your thirst. In fact, it would quench your thirst forever. Now, the woman is a bit confused. She doesn't really know what's going on. She's thinking about physical things and Jesus, he's thinking about spiritual things. She responds basically by saying, mate, you haven't even got a bucket. How are you going to get me this living water? Are you greater than, than Jacob, the guy that built this well? What are you talking about, Jesus? You're not making any sense. And in John, we've already seen examples of other people who are thinking physical when Jesus is thinking spiritual. In John chapter 3, Jesus meets a Jewish leader. His name's Nicodemus. And Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night, wanting to know how he can enter the kingdom of God. And Jesus says to Nicodemus, you must be born again. And Nicodemus is like, what? Born again? Must I enter a second time into my mother's womb to be born again? Jesus, you're not making any sense. But Nicodemus, he's thinking physical. Jesus is thinking spiritual. And Jesus is saying to him, Nicodemus, you've got it all wrong. If you want to enter the kingdom of God, you must be born again spiritually to enter the kingdom of God. And the same is for this woman at the well. She is thinking physical. Jesus is thinking spiritual. And Jesus is thinking of spiritual water that eliminates first, always satisfies and leads to eternal life. Jesus says to the woman that living water can't be found down the well that Jacob built. It can't be found there. It can only be found through the Spirit of God. We see later in John's Gospel, in John 7, 
verse 37 to 39, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this he meant the spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Everyone who drinks physical water, as we know, will be thirsty again. I'm forever needing a drink of water. But anyone who is filled with the Holy Spirit will never be thirsty. They'll have their deepest desires and longings met. The woman, she hasn't got a clue what's going on. She doesn't understand. She doesn't get it. In fact, in verse 15, she's still saying to Jesus, where can I get this physical water so I don't have to keep coming back to the well? But then what we see is that the talk at the well takes a very strange turn. Jesus wants to go deeper. Jesus actually wants to address the deepest longings in her heart. And so in verse 16, he says to this woman, go, go and call your husband and come back. Now, Jesus, he already knows what's going on here. He knows what the woman is going to say. And he's not trying to condemn her. He's not trying to condemn her. He's just trying to have the real conversation. He's trying to keep it real. How do I know that? Well, in John 3, verse 17, it says, For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. He's not trying to condemn her. He's not trying to affirm her behaviour either, but he's trying to expose her need for a saviour. And at this point, I really honestly wish I had a camera on this moment to see how this woman would have said verse 17. I don't think she would have said it in anger or defiance. I actually think she would have looked down at her feet, maybe bowed her head low a little bit and just said, almost in a quiet voice, maybe after even taking a deep breath, I have no husband. At this point, Jesus doesn't want to squeeze her for any more information. He actually embodies compassion and love. In Matthew 11, Jesus says, Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus wants her to come to him to find rest. So look, he turns to her and he says, you're right. You're right that you have no husband. The fact is, you actually have five husbands. And the man you're now with is not your husband. So what you've said actually is, is quite true. Ouch. The woman, I'm sure, is feeling full of shame, feeling exposed, knowing that she's done wrong. I wonder what your equivalent would be of the I have no husband line. Maybe it's a problem with gambling. Maybe it's a problem with lust and pornography. Maybe it's a a challenge with your own self-esteem, your own self-worth. Maybe it's about your self-fulfillment. Maybe it's all about enjoying yourself. Maybe it's just about the self. You see, we realise that every single one of us are unworthy of salvation. Every single one of us have fallen short. And the woman in this story, she knows it. She knows that she's fallen short. And so actually her response is, I need to do something. What do I do? What do I do with my sin and my shame? And so literally the woman replies to Jesus, where should I go? 
where should I go? Presumably she feels like she needs to go to see a priest and maybe make a sacrifice and maybe the blood of the animal would atone for her sin. And that's why she turns to Jesus and says, you know, my ancestors worship on this mountain. Should I, should I stay here? But you Jews, you say we should go to Jerusalem. So where, where should I go? What should I do? And essentially Jesus turns to her and says, it doesn't matter where you worship. It matters who you worship. It doesn't matter if you're stood on this mountain or whether you're in Jerusalem. It matters who you worship. You see, true worshippers are those who worship God all the time, everywhere. I hope you understand that God can't be confined to a place. True worshippers are those who worship him all the time, everywhere, and it's for all people. I think that verse 25 and 26 is just outstanding. The woman says, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he'll explain everything to us. And Jesus declares, I the one speaking to you. I am he. Isn't that brilliant? It actually reminds me of a trip I had to America a few years ago. I was actually coming back to the UK from America. I'd been there for a tour. And I was in one of the airports in America. And whilst I was there, a huge entourage of sports people were walking through the airport. I love sports, so I was really intrigued. And these sports people were all wearing the same tracksuit. So I thought, I'll get a bit closer and see what's going on. As I got closer, I realised that all these sports people were wearing the logo of Everton Football Club. Now, I'm a Liverpool fan, so I don't care about Everton. That didn't excite me at all. I wish it was Liverpool, but I thought, you know what, I'll get a bit closer anyway and see see who they are, basically. As I got closer, I didn't recognise anyone. And I saw three or four of them chatting, so I I just approached them and I made the schoolboy error, the biggest rookie error of saying to them, do you play for the youth team? At which point, they were disgusted. They were like, no, youth team? We don't play for the youth team. We play for the first team. And all of a sudden, my eyes like opened up. They lit up. And all of a sudden, I could recognise these Premier League superstars. I saw Mikel Arteta, who's now the, the current Arsenal manager. I saw Phil Neville and David Moyes, who actually was the manager at the time. But I I couldn't recognise them initially. It was only when their identities were revealed to me that I could see them for who they really were. And it's the same for this woman in this story. She couldn't recognise who Jesus was until Jesus fully disclosed his identity to her. I, the one speaking to you, I am he. This one encounter changes the life of this woman. And not only this woman, but it changes the town that she's part of. At this moment, the woman leaves the jar of water at Jesus' feet. She goes back to her town and says to everyone, come, come, come see a man. And at this point, it makes me laugh because given her reputation, the people in the town would have been thinking, oh no, here we go again. Could this be another future husband because of her reputation? But she said, no, 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 come, come, come see a man who told me everything I've ever done. The surprising thing is that these people actually come. They go and follow her, they go to see Jesus. And then we read in verse 39 and 42, many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him 
because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. And in verse 42, they said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we've heard for ourselves and we know this man really is the saviour of the world. This disenfranchised woman who was looking for love and acceptance and belonging in all the wrong places turns to Jesus, becomes the talk of the town and through her testimony, many are saved and realise that Jesus really is the saviour of the world. Two things I just want to mention. Firstly, when we consider this story alongside the story of Nicodemus from John chapter 3, we realise that no one is good enough to be saved. Despite all your good deeds, like Nicodemus, you can never be good enough to be saved. But also, no one is beyond the reach of saving. Even though you may have done terrible things, even though you may feel like, I'm so bad, like this woman, no one is beyond the reach of saving. The contrast is stark. Nicodemus is respectable, he's Jewish, he's a religious leader. Surely he's good enough to make it in. Surely if anyone is good enough for the kingdom, it's this man Nicodemus. But no, he's not good enough. He must be born again. The Samaritan woman, she's immoral, she's female, she's an outcast. Surely she could never get in. Surely she would never be right for the kingdom. And yet she gets in, not based on anything that she does, but solely and purely on the basis of God's amazing grace. Secondly, no one can rely on the faith of someone else. We sometimes can rely on the faith of someone else, like a friend or a parent, and we can think, oh, because of that person's faith, I'll be okay. Or we can think, oh, because I went to church when I was a child, maybe I was part of the Church of England, maybe I was part of another church, but because I was a part of a church, I'll be okay. But we can't do that. We can't rely on that. You see, the townspeople come to experience God for themselves. They say, we no longer believe because of what you said, but now we have heard for ourselves. I wonder for you, have you personally experienced God? Have you personally been filled with the Holy Spirit and given eternal life? I wonder, will you make Jesus' story your own story? It's your time to decide. It's your time to make a decision. You see, we all thirst for purpose and meaning, love and security in all different types of things. This woman at the well, she looks for it in all different types of places, particularly in relationships with men. And she continually is left unsatisfied and wanting more. You see, there's only one relationship that can quench our thirst and give us life. And that relationship is with Jesus who really is the saviour of the world. There are three ways in which you can respond today. The first way is that you can decide today, for the very first time, to put your trust in Jesus as your Lord and saviour. The second way you can respond is by making a recommitment. Maybe you're someone who's previously had a, a faith in God, I don't know. But maybe right now, You've wandered away from the faith. You've turned your back on God. Maybe made some questionable decisions. Maybe gone back into bad, sinful habits. And today you're saying, I want to come back to God. I want to recommit my life to living for him. And the third way you can respond is maybe you're watching this or listening to this and joining us. And maybe you just 
have never been baptised. And maybe you want to take a further step of obedience to Jesus' words and be baptised in the near future. There'll be an opportunity to respond before we close this meeting today. But before I close, I really just wonder what happened next to this woman. The scriptures do not tell us what happened next. But sometimes it's fun just to ponder for a moment what may have happened next to this woman. I wonder whether eventually she did make that trip to Jerusalem at the time of Passover. And I wonder whether on that occasion she did stand with other women on another mountain on the day that the sun turned dark at midday. And I wonder whether as she looked at the cross and she saw Jesus, she was reminded that this man was the man who told her everything that she'd ever done. And I wonder as she saw Jesus hanging on the cross and Jesus said those final words, it is finished. I wonder maybe she was reminded of the words that she had, he had spoken over her, that it doesn't matter where you worship. It matters who you worship. And maybe this is what he meant. He hangs in shame on a cross so that I can stand in glory. Isn't that the gospel? Isn't that the good news? That he takes upon himself our sin and our shame and our guilt so that through faith in him, we can be forgiven and given everlasting life. When the Messiah comes, she says, he'll explain everything to us. Jesus says, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for the gospel, the good news of Jesus, that it's not about what we have done, but we solely enter into the kingdom of God based on your grace. And I'm so thankful that in this story, we see your grace and your compassion at work. And we're so thankful that you changed the life of the Samaritan woman, you changed the lives of those people in the town, and today you're continually changing lives. And I pray that today you'd pour out your Holy Spirit upon us and that today would be the day of salvation for many. Lord, I pray you'd reveal yourself to us, your true identity as the saviour of the world. I pray that we'd worship you and acknowledge your name and live for you every day of our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.